So what are the rules here? Because are, are we just spoiling everything? It, mm. Are we having a conversation? Because I, in order to have this conversation correctly, I think we need to understand what the book is and how it ends and therefore how it begins and all this. So like, are we pretending there are people out there who haven't yet seen this, are interested? Well, not pretending. There probably are people yeah, who haven't yeah, yet yeah. seen this and are going to listen to us discuss it. So tell me, tell me the rules we're playing by. Yeah, I think, I think it's impossible to do this without, without lots of spoiling. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, what, we should, what, what should we keep secret? Like the author's name? Like there's right. no- I don't, yeah. I don't know. So we should say, for all of you out there, pause the podcast now, <laughs> go and spend two and a half hours watching the movie and a day or two reading the book, and then we'll start in five, four, and now I'm doing the hands thing, but not saying the numbers and pointing to you. And I'm, I'm gonna recut all this so your timing is meaningless. Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Sleerickets. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else. Uh, thank you for subscribing, or just for recommending the show to somebody you think might enjoy it, even if only so as to have something new to argue about. Just very quickly, I have to exercise a little bit of official Slee Ricketts nepotism today, today being Tuesday uh, for, for you yesterday, if you're listening to this the day it's released, today is the day my wife Joanna Pearson's new book comes out. Her new book is called Now You Know It All. It's a collection of short stories that won the Drew Hines Prize selected by Edward P. Jones. It's a great collection of stories. It's a great looking book. They did a really nice job with it and it comes out today. So uh, go buy this book. It's really good. It, it is, she is the universally preferred member of our marriage. So <laughs> if, you, if you like me, then you will like her far better. Please do go check it out. I will put a link in the show notes to some place you can buy it that is not Amazon. This week, I have my very first returning guest, Brian Platzer, the cosmopolitan Brooklyn sex novelist himself, is back this time to talk about Ian Reed's novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, as well as Charlie Kaufman's movie of the same name. Brian is a prolific writer, essayist, nonfiction commentator, humorist, as we will discuss later in the episode, and uh, plenty of other things besides. He is the author of bed is Burning, The Body Politic, and most recently, Taking the Stress Out of Homework. You can find him on Twitter at bplatzer. He tweets mostly boring things, I think, but that's probably uh, prudent, <laughs> given, yeah, given the alternative. Uh, it's a fun conversation. It's a pretty long conversation, so I will get to it in just a moment. Just real quick, I want to make the note that in our conversation, I talk up briefly about the poem Bone Dog, uh, 
by Eva H.D. The poem appears in the movie version of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And for some reason, I, in our discussion of it, invented the name Hannah Davis <laughs> and attributed the poem to her. My apologies to Hannah Davis, should she exist, and of course to Eva H.D., who is the real author of the poem Bone Dog. Sorry again. And let's just get straight to my conversation with Brian. All right. to, what, um, to what extent did you do research? Research? Like, I still uh, don't know what Oklahoma is about. The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so jo Joanna um, was helpful. She she was familiar with it, and so she pointed some things out. And then I looked up a Wikipedia page, and so I, I knew a little bit of it. And then some of I just haven't seen Oklahoma, but I yeah. I, so I, I did a little bit of looking stuff up. Did you read anything about what Charlie Kaufman said about his writing this movie and directing it? No, no. Okay, neither, neither did I. I think that's I think that's better. I think that's yeah, better. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there were like some things that there were some clearly a, a whole lot of references and things, and I'm sure there are plenty that we both missed. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, otherwise, I, I I read it and took some notes, and I watched it and took some notes. Yeah, I watched it. it twice. I read it once. My experience uh, disambiguating the two is nearly impossible. I've tried. I tried. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk first about the book a little bit. And then we'll, we'll probably end up just muddling it all the way through. So I, I'm thinking of ending things as a novel it came out in 2016. It was by Ian Reed, who had previously written a couple of successful nonfiction books. This is memoirs. Again, I haven't read these memoirs, but oh, I they're, oh, they're memoirs. Okay, yeah, I just read them listed as nonfiction. I'm so oh. curious about how this lunatic novel was written by a man who made his reputation writing memoirs because this is the least memoiry book I've ever read in my life. But oh, but ahead. that makes so much more sense to me than I thought he'd written like biographies of Winston Churchill. And I was like, that's <laughs> that makes because this this seems so okay. You're right. Seat of pants. The biography but... of Winston Churchill is farther from I'm thinking of ending things than memoirs about Ian Reid's own life. So this was a this is a successful book. It was uh, NPR loved it. It sold a lot of copies. People it was it was sold, and this is this is part of what like blows my mind about it. It was sold and bought as a literary thriller, which, which initially at least was how the movie was pitched to Netflix audiences. We can talk more about that later. But but this is sort of presented as a literary. Th thriller it's short it's like 200 pages uh do you want to do you want to give a sort of sort of summary or sort of i don't know i mean we can yeah I'll, I'll do my best i so the the story is from the first person perspective of a woman presumably in her late 20s or early 30s mm -hmm. who is in a car initially on the way to meeting for the first time the parents of the man she has been dating for approximately six weeks. The book occurs in thirds. The first third is her thoughts and their conversations on the way to the farmhouse where his parents live. The middle third is the depiction of that meeting where the four of them chat and have dinner. And then the final third is 
her trip home with the boyfriend after that meeting. Yes, and home, but you know, is highly complicated by by the end. as as is everything. Yeah. And then in in this book, it's also important to mention there are interstitial sections where unnamed observers are hysterically shouting to each other about a vicious, horrible crime that has been committed. That they feel it's so unmeasurably like morally superior to and like unimplicated by. Right. So you have you have it's it's essentially a forehander, right? You have the the two, the the girl, her boyfriend, the woman, her her boyfriend, her parents. And then every 50 pages, they there's a chapter break, and there are, I think, two unnamed, never met people who are just repeating how horrifying and aghast they are about the autopsy results and the yeah. manner in which this crime was committed, how much blood there was, how no one can believe such a thing could have occurred. And the, and the guy, like there's the references to sort of the, having vaguely known the guy or he was like a work person, a colleague, can, he sort of can, slowly Can you believe together. such a man, that the man had keys and he could uh, commit such a crime or the, the man the man went to a movie in the cinema and yet he could commit such a ghastly crime. So it's, it's clever in its way because you could write a book about anything and then interrupt it every 50 pages with two unnamed observers saying like, and can you believe everything that occurred in addition to the book that you're reading now? What an extraordinary series of events. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like you com- you complained in an email about the the device in the White Lotus series, where it opens with the with the with the the information that one of the characters that we are going to spend the entire series with dies, but we have no context other than that it's not the shithead fiance. And it's just a funny it's a funny move, and it's also. Lazy is not the right word, but it's sort of giving, it's like giving up from the beginning. It's like, you can, you can literally add to any novel ever an opening chapter where you hint at something grisly and horrible happening as a way to get the reader to engage more intensely or any, any television show can open with a divorce or a murder or a death or a, uh, really anything. And then it adds um, momentum to a plot that, you know, we talk about whether it's earned or not. I, I don't right. think that's valuable because you earn it as soon as you put it into the, the manuscript, but like whether it's organically a part of a manuscript, I think is worth talking about. And it's in um, White Lotus on HBO and in this book, I'm thinking of ending things. It's just, there's the, the work, there's the narrative fiction. And then on top of it, the author or the, the showrunner is saying, and there's a grisly, horrible death that will occur at some point. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's a, uh, he, he creates interest with this, with this mystery, but then we have almost no indication for almost the whole length of the book about how that relates to anything else we're reading. 
And I am willing to assert that right. the reason most novelists and showrunners do not use that advice, that device is not because they're unaware of it and is not because they feel it is cheap, but because it sets up such expectations in the reader slash viewer that the reader or viewer will almost by definition be disappointed when they get to the uh, reveal of that the mystery has set up. And I felt that disappointment both in White Lotus and in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, that in White Lotus, I feel like that initial setup was entirely useless and shouldn't have been there. <laughs> and I'm thinking of ending things. I think the interruption every once in a while to tell you there is a horrible murder that will take place is necessary to the, to the book. The book could not exist without it because it would be unreadably boring or uh, uh, insubstantial or unsubstantial or something like that. Um, but I think in both accounts, because you are reading for that conclusion, that conclusion has to be so extraordinary to meet the expectations of the reader or viewer that it is almost impossible to pull off, which is why, although one could begin any work of art with the, by the way, there's gonna be a grisly, horrible murder at the end, you tend not to begin a work of art that way because those expectations become unmeetable. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. And in, in both both of us, unfortunately, were, were whatever we saw the movie first and then saw the book it was, or then read the book it was based on. I, I found myself in getting to the end of this book thinking, if I sat down cold and read this, and had had it sold to me as a literary thriller, and then read these little little interludes with the the references to to a grisly crime. And and then read all of the, the mysterious stuff happening with the, the girlfriend character. And I got to the end, I would be fucking furious. I would yeah, think I, what a I shitty, read. shitty literary thriller this was. I agree. Uh, I also don't know what literary thriller means. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time parsing it because I find the definitions of literary terms to be useless. Like yeah. you can call a poem, whatever you want to call a poem and I'll call something literary if I want to. It has something to do with interiority and character, but I, yeah. I, I don't feel like that will be a particularly valuable use of our time. Um, do you want to spoil it now for everybody before we move on? Like, should we say, ladies and gentlemen, here comes yeah. the giant reveal for both the book and the movie? Yeah, well, and, and then we should just say that the the other part of the thrillerish, mysterious, the, the other thing that makes it a, a thriller or a mystery is that, so the, the, the woman, we never get a name for her. So that was Matthew saying no. He's saying he, he well, doesn't well, well, just like, to, yes, to spoil but like the whole one more little, one more little piece of information a just, to, just to clarify, because I, I want our, our audience to get some, to, to share to some extent. Oh, our we're going to give them the thrill. Right. Oh, well, you're going to yeah. get the thrill. So, oh, so, so you in the audience think this is a book as Brian, I'm Brian. This is a book as Brian just said. It's about a woman meeting the parents of her boyfriend. Right. That's all it's about, guys. And, and the and mysterious uh, judgmental interlocutors with the yeah, grizzly. But yeah. that's all you think is going on here. That's true. Yes. Uh, assuming you haven't seen or read. But so the other part of the other thing that makes the, the book mysterious and spooky and th thrilling is that the girlfriend character seems throughout to have 
some difficulty remembering or clarifying like boy we've been dating six weeks but boy it seems like a long time also the very very first sentence of the book and and the sentence that is repeated throughout the book is i'm thinking of ending things because she she is already decided that probably she doesn't really want to keep dating this guy some things seem okay but but this isn't really probably she shouldn't be going to visit his parents they should you know it's a little too much too soon she's not really that into it probably and the voice and the voice matters so let's let me let yeah. me give the first yeah yeah, yeah. you wanted to like read the first yeah. few sentences so or, the yeah. book begins i'm thinking of ending things once this thought arrives it stays it sticks it lingers it dominates. There's not much I can do about it. Trust me. It doesn't go away. It's there whether I like it or not. It's there when I eat, when I go to bed. It's there when I sleep. It's there when I wake up. It's always there. Always. I haven't been thinking about it for long. The idea is new, but it feels old at the same time. When did it start? What if this thought wasn't conceived by me, but planted in my mind, pre-developed? Is an unspoken idea unoriginal? Maybe I've actually known all along. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. Yeah, and I, I, will, I will say that, despite whatever you know, whatever misgivings I have about it, I think that the voice is probably the strongest part of the book. It it is. I think he leans on it way way too much. But the simultaneously, like the the, the extremely flat and calm way in which this voice discusses like increasingly alarming ideas seems to be part of what, at least for me, creates some of the interest of the book. It, they're, they're also like, what is happening with her boyfriend and what is happening with his parents becomes really hard to figure out why they're doing any of the things they're doing, as well as this caller thing. There's a, there's a mysterious caller. So, so there are a, a yeah. variety of things in this book, um, actions that the characters take, their uh, psychological attitudes, um, other external factors that are never explained, the ending that are uh, inexplicable and infuriating. You ready for my big big reveal before we get to the book's big reveal? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My big reveal is I loved this book. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this book was great. I don't. I mean, I we're going to talk about all the reasons you hated it, and I'm going to agree with all those reasons. Like, this is a loathsome, terrible book. I loved every second of it. I read it in uh, five hours. It was it like took me less time to read the book than watch the movie. I <laughs> you you thought about a literary thriller. We're like mocking the idea. I thought this was a great literary thriller. The sentences were fascinating. It's like uh, peak Hemingway. This shit. Like, I I think this is. I enjoyed reading this book as much as I've enjoyed reading most books that I like. I, I would put this in the top quarter of books I've enjoyed in the last year or two. I, I think Ian Reed wrote a hell of a book. I agree with the starred reviews by Publisher Weekly and Library Journal. I agree with NPR's weekend edition that it was a creepy, yes, enthralling new novel. I, I think this voice is fascinating. I think the fact that none of it makes any sense makes it even like more exciting. It's this, I, I mean, we should get to the big reveal sometime <laughs> yeah. soon because it helps inform my big reveal, which is right. that I, I was everything about me and my upbringing should make me despise this book. And yet I adored it. Um, but I think this is great. Did you listen to all those sentences I read? They're so great. Oh, yeah, right. No, they are. And then they're like, do you want to stop for coffee? And, and it's like, I think I don't. And, you know, this is the last chance. And like, I want to know whether they're going to stop for coffee. And, and it's all done with such like 
linguistic precision where it's clear that all these choices are made so actively. And the fact that all the choices uh, add up to nothing and are meaningless if you spend any time <laughs> thinking about it, it didn't, it didn't negatively affect my reading of this book. I was um, furious at the end that nothing you know, manifested itself in an acceptable way, that none of these decisions made any sense that the characters um, aren't characters, that th there's right. nothing, you know, as one would say in workshop or in a literature class earned. That being said, I uh, immensely enjoyed the reading experience. And I think that Ian Reed pretty much was successful in manipulating me as he intended to manipulate all his readers. And for that, not only do I give him kudos, but I heartily recommend this book to anyone interested. I, I can definitely say it is a it is a very breezy and pleasant read. Like it it is you know it, it, it you can whip through it and it is perfectly enjoyable, sentence to sentence and page to page. Maybe maybe like this is what people mean by a beach read. Like you 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 want to read it and you don't want to think too much about it. So it's you want to do the opposite of what we're doing here, which is not read it but think too much about it. Right. But the problem is is yeah. Ian Reed desperately wants us to think too much about it. So it's not, it's not quite the definition of a beach read, because I think in a beach read, it's like, look at these people who won't end up falling in love, and they fell in love, you know, and that, yeah. or like, like, look at this, all these deaths that are happening in the town in Italy. Oh, this is the guy who made those deaths happen, you know, and like, I think that uh, this book wants to be thought of as the type of book that two assholes like us will spend time right. on a podcast dissecting. And I think it pretty much fails in all those ways. But that being said, what a wonderful way to spend five hours. I, in terms of entertainment, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. better than 10 episodes of Seinfeld. Like I, I, I totally enjoyed this. Yeah. I think the book is almost the opposite of the movie. Yes. Like the book is, is like pure, pure candy schlock. That's totally unsatisfying and you never want to think about it again. And the movie is almost excruciating to watch, but I think like really beautiful and brilliant. So I will fight you on both, but let's again, okay. we're, yeah, we're yeah, starting yeah. way so, too general. So, before right. And so, so one last quick note before we spoil everything, there's a caller. She gets calls from this caller. She's been getting calls from this caller. She doesn't want to tell her boyfriend about him. He is a, a, an older man. He calls speaking in an effeminate, affectedly effective voice. Like he's trying to pretend to be a woman talking. And he says the same thing on her, her answering machine, the same, the, or when, when she picks up or when he leaves a message, he always says the same thing. The thing he says is there's only one question to resolve. I'm scared. I feel a little crazy. I'm not lucid. The assumptions are right. I can feel my fear growing. Now is the time for the answer. Just one question, one question to answer. It, he keeps calling uh, two other weird things is that when she when she shows when she when she uh, passes the phone to her boyfriend on one of these calls, the boyfriend listens to it and he says, "Oh, it's just some old woman." Like the the boyfriend can't tell that it's a man; he thinks it's an it's an, a woman as well. Uh, and then the other thing is that the call always comes from the girl's own number. Like her phone number is what shows up on her phone when this call calls. So this happens and it keeps happening throughout the book and she's really anxious about it, but she also doesn't want to discuss it with anybody except us. So the big reveal, do you want to, do you want to spoil this book that you, uh, that you loved? <laughs> this is my favorite book and the reveal <laughs> behind the greatest work of 21st century literature <laughs> is that the main characters don't exist. <laughs> um, so the whole it was thing, all a dream. It was all a dream. The whole thing 
um, it didn't didn't happen. <laughs> what what happens is there's an old guy who parenthetically whom parenthetically Ian Reed clearly despises and looks down on and uh, gives no humanity to. And this, this entire book, the entire story is his imagining what would have happened if a woman whom he happened to be seated next to at a bar during a quiz night had flirted with him in the way he wished she had. And then they had a brief relationship and then he brought her to some simulacrum of his parents' house a long time ago. So we are meant to believe that this old sad man has pinned all of his current emotional and psychological energy on a meeting that never occurred with this one woman he didn't even really meet many, 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 many years ago. And that he has been writing about it in note form, but possibly novel length note form. And also after he somehow satisfies himself with these characters, a younger version of his imagined self and an imagined girlfriend for that younger version of his imagined self visiting some real-ish but imagined version of his family home, somehow this memory or this story or this narrative written or just thought is satisfying enough for him that he murders himself, he commits suicide, this old man, in the most gruesome, inexplicably painful way you have ever heard of somebody being uh, committing suicide, namely that I think he takes some sort of coat hanger and yeah. twists it around and repeatedly shoves the points into his neck and chest until he dies. Now he, he gives himself a coat hanger abortion. Right. So we are no, we have no idea why this story matters so much to him that he must complete it before he kills himself in that manner. We have no idea why this of all the women he saw and stood next to is important enough to him to dedicate his final moments to. We have no idea why he kills himself in such a physically painful manner. Um, We have no idea why the characters who have been hinting at this grisly death um, aren't named or how they're chosen or how they fit into any of this. But what we do know is the story that we've been reading up up until this point towards the end is a... um, fantasy fabrication of a man right before he's going to kill himself, which in the book at least gives a double meaning to I'm thinking of ending things because it provides the uh, female uh, protagonist, the narrator, a repetition of I'm thinking of ending things, meaning the relationship, but it allows the actual uh, mind, the consciousness behind this story to constantly remind himself that he's thinking about killing himself. And theoretically the story of the girlfriend thinking of ending the relationship should propel the older gentleman who is gonna commit suicide to kill himself. So they will think about ending things together. 
that never happens, that connection, but that is what should have happened or probably is implied to have happened in the book. Wait, what's the, wait, I missed the part you said, ending things together? What? Right, like if this were written well, what would right. happen is the, the girlfriend ends the relationship as the man who imagines all this ends his life. There should be a, a sort of asymptotic moment where right. one where story become... contributes to the next or else it makes no sense. So it makes no right. sense because yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. But the, the dual meaning of I'm thinking of ending things is both the woman in the relationship and the man in his life. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They should correspond at the end. There should be right. a, a coming together of those two narratives for this to have emotional um, punch. There is no coming together. It doesn't have any emotional punch. Um, but all the opportunity is there for something yeah. along those lines. And in like in the last section of the book, which takes place in the high school where the old man is a janitor, the book book like attempts sort of to, to heighten the literary thriller stakes by by suggesting very strongly that the janitor is a is an evil murderer who's like chasing down the, the girlfriend who's hiding from him and becomes like very like slasher flick until eventually she remembers that she doesn't exist. Right. So slasher flick in an a truly inexplicable way. Yes. Because there is there is no plausible explanation for why a, an elderly janitor about to kill himself would invent the story of the potential love of his life, who then finds herself coming to the elderly janitor who's imagining her and is terrified that he has the intention uh, to murder her, unless this is him coming to terms in some way with his own suicide. But the grotesque fear of the unexpected coming that she feels doesn't have any correlation with any reasonable uh, assessment of a man very slowly over the course of a long time deciding to end his own life. So those those emotions are so at odds with each other that I can't make sense of them. You I, agree there or disagree? I disagree with that. And I actually disagree with one other thing you said, which, which I think only like, suggests how fundamentally we may like dis di differently. The, the, the other thing I disagreed with is that you said that he, he has the, the, the Ian Reed has total contempt for this old man. I actually, part of what annoyed me about the book is that I felt he was way too in love with the old man. I thought he like, he, he was worshipful of the old man in this sort of weird self-aggrandizing way or, or, or sort of like, to me, it read like a sort of self-flattery. But uh, no, the, the, the fear of the, I, I think the slasher flick quality of the end where she's like trying to hide in the hallway and this, this, this creepy man's chasing her, that all seemed nonsensical. Her feeling, however, made sense to me insofar as in the moments leading up to suicide, it seems pretty common if not universal for people to feel a very strong even violent ambivalence and like part of them is very afraid and part of them is sort of determined and so that that to me felt like that's maybe where that comes from the depiction of it as a as a you know murder chase thing seemed dumb but right. the feeling made sense so what what's fascinating about i agree with that i it was the it was the slasher yeah, yeah, yeah. movie aspect of it that that made me a little crazy what's fascinating about this book um in general to, to me is that Ian Reed uses all of these creepy tropes mm -hmm. in a way that 
he doesn't attempt to explain. So not only does he have um, these people every once in a while come in and say, by the way, there's going to be a, a grisly, horrible death, but he has, you know, this unnamed caller, which is, you know, the most cliche uh, horror movie trope, right? Where somebody's calling and they're calling from inside the building or somebody's calling and we can't, we don't know who it is. Um, dead animals show up everywhere, you know, and, and because life on a farm is, is hard. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we, we keep on being told, but again, the dead animals don't amount to anything in the same way that the caller doesn't amount to anything. None of these are um, logical uh, plot points that inevitably lead to something else. They are just token scary things. Similarly, there's a picture on a wall that changes based on who's looking at it, right? This is another just sort of uh, horror movie trope. We have the uh, losing of hair and the pulling out of, of one's own hair, which is another sort of psychological thriller trope of people losing control. We have uh, people often warning the main character who shouldn't be in any danger that she is in danger. That happens repeatedly. Um, again, nothing comes of it. We have no idea why she's being warned by all these characters. And we have her, she finds you know, her own shirt as balled up you know, in another character's house in a way. So like, there are all of these just like, objectively scary things in the, in the that, basement the weird that creepy the basement and yeah. then don't go down to the basement it's a big scary basement yeah, yeah, yeah. um and again the basement is is unnecessary to, to everything yeah. else that we're yeah, yeah. that we're following so i i am fascinated by this book and, and really um a, a fan of it i think because ian reed is just doing it all and doing it all correctly <laughs> he, he he gives us all of these legitimately scary things they are scary on top of that he maps what what i find is a very controlled voice that doesn't make a single mistake um until it actively tries to go into this other you know thriller slasher film um mindset but it's all of this is written in short compact uh psychologically uh conscious and yet confused sentences that really works for me. And the fact that the whole thing doesn't add up was a minor disappointment at the end, but, but nothing more than that. How many of Ian Reed's MFA classmates do you think killed themselves with coat hangers after this book uh, was published? I think more after it got the reviews. That it got. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, think, I think Ian Reed successfully writing a thriller that doesn't really make any sense is something we could imagine, all of us could imagine, our MFA classmates have <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah. But this being dis described Lots as yeah. concise, ingenious, and terrifying by everybody who reviewed it, I think that's when the coat hangers came out for <laughs> all of Ian Reed's classmates. Yeah, he just—I mean, he—he he writes really, really good sentences. I think that's like that's pretty inarguable. The okay, so another thing I, I did want to think about, and this is this is where I, I felt part of this is in contrast to the movie because I saw the movie first, but, but the, 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 the thing about the old man character, the janitor character, who of course in the end we, we learn is Jake is everybody in the book. He's a little bit of a polymath. He, he, he's, he's a little pretentious. He like, refers to himself as a cruciverbalist when he first meets the, the woman. He's, he's like part of a nerdy uh, show offy trivia group, but then he also, he, he has, you know, relatively, he has like in the, in the book, I mean, I think in the movie, they, 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 
they balance it in a different kind of way, but he's like sort of encyclopedic knowledge of several different fields. He also, there are all these references to how like he was a, like a very accomplished and successful and promising, uh, potentially genius level physics grad student who had a kind of a nervous breakdown and had to like the reason that he's working as a janitor and is very sad and lonely and alone is that he, he, a combination of like his mental instability and the cruelty and unfairness of the world and like failing to acknowledge his genius, I guess like maybe just because the, the accumulation of special exceptional happenstances feels to me a little bit unsatisfying in a novel. It got really annoyed me that on top of everything else, this guy was a sad overlooked genius. Did you get that feeling or was that my over reading? Cause a lot of the same elements are there in the movie, but they're handled so differently that here it felt like he was bemoaning the world's failure to acknowledge this, this sad, brilliant man. I agree, but that is why I am surprised that you think that Ian Reed sees himself in the sad, brilliant man. That is why I don't think Ian Reed sees himself in the sad, brilliant man. Because remember, Ian Reed has already had two successful <laughs> memoirs by the time he wrote this. So where you see this as Ian Reed saying, look at me, I'm an unacknowledged sad, brilliant man, and all sad, brilliant men should be acknowledged. I read this as a, as, as a form of almost cultural appropriation, where I think Ian Reed has no right to have pity for this unacknowledged, sad, brilliant man. And it comes out for me, when he's describing the sad, brilliant man towards the end, when he's deciding to kill himself, the, the sad, brilliant man is, I hold my hand over my mouth to muffle my own sound. My hand is shaking. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear anything anymore. I don't want to see. It's not nice, period. That's it not nice. It, it's not nice was such a demeaning thought to put in the head of a sad, brilliant man. He makes him a simpleton at the end. And, and that to me is where I saw the movie do a far better job than the yeah. book, because I think the actor who plays the brilliant man sort of gives that character some depth and pathos in the way that Ian Reed does not. Ian Reed's sad, brilliant man just shows up at the end to kill himself. And I feel like he's doing you know, like a uh, sad suicide guy shtick here, which I, I felt distanced me from the book and from that character in a way that made you feel like we were supposed to celebrate that guy. I didn't get that feeling at all in the book. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you about it's not nice. That that I think that that is a really condescending thing to have the the character say. There's part I think part of what got to me a, a lot a lot of what what suggested to me Ian Reed's actual feelings about this old man were were not so much what he says and does, but what the the shitty shitty nameless interlocutors in the the little inter interstitial sections say, which is which is like uh, um, oh here I found it. So on page eighty nine, it was the most annoying one to me. Uh, or second most annoying when they're talking about this 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 horrible thing, which of course, as we learn, is, is the guy's you know stabbing himself to death in a you know closet in the high school where he works. They say we can't let the actions of one man make us feel guilty. This isn't about us. We are the normal ones. It's only about him. You're right. It's good to be reminded of that. I mean, that is so ridiculous. Like it's not <laughs> even that that's callous and self-centered. Like. That's not even how callous, self-centered people speak when someone they know is not. They, they over-empathize. Uh, they pretend to be in that person's shoes. So it's, it's totally, to me, it's totally like 
it is so uh, uh, dismissive of people who fail adequately to show understanding for this guy. And then, and then it is I mean, the, to me, like the, 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 really the cherry on top, like the, 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 the little note that, that like most maddened me in this book was the very, very, very end. When, uh, as you said, we learned that the, the, the majority of the book with the exception of those little, uh, italicized sections has been this man's lengthy, inexplicable and a uh, uh, exquisitely well-written suicide note, and the 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 two interlocutors say he wrote you know he he wrote about this he wrote about these characters. Uh, does he explain why he ended things? I'm not sure. We're not really sure. Maybe. What do you mean? He either explained it or he didn't. It's just what. It's not that simple. I don't know. Here, look at this. What is all this? This is a lot of pages. Is this what he wrote? Yes. You should read it. But maybe start at the end, then circle back. First, though, I think you better sit down. And to me, that's like, again, like that is literally the thought that somebody has in fantasizing about committing suicide and having everybody uh, mourn his loss and how little they appreciated him while he was alive. I mean, that, that it's a crazy, crazy thing to write, to end the book on. And to me, that's why I, I, I'm, I'm with you in thinking like, this is definitely not Ian Reid writing about himself. But what I thought it was, I thought it, he was, you said it was cultural appropriation. I think what he was doing was saying, you know, I wonder, I wonder what life would have been like for someone like me if 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 all of his brilliance hadn't been recognized. Let me let me, let me put myself in those shoes. I see. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, that that's not bad because then what it would be was he would have written a best the same brilliant book that he wrote script except he would just be a sad janitor, right? Like yeah. He, and only still, after his death right. would everybody recognize like the, right. the same result occur. Right. And he's he's I mean, th that shift to the implicit second person where he's like, and now readers, you should reread the book knowing what you know now. Ha ha ha. Like it, it is, it is like jokes on you when we as the reader were like, no, no, we, 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 we got it, man. Like we're, we don't need to reread the book. We, we got pretty much what was like, it's the same thing. This is what we expected, which I think is a useful time to transition to the movie a little bit because I see the book as as a gripping manuscript that fails to end, that doesn't know yeah. how it's supposed to end, that all the pieces don't add up, you know, like a like a less infuriating version of Lost, the, the TV show. Did you watch Lost? No. So Lost is this um, extraordinarily well done J.J. Abrams television show. Where, in fact, like hugely, hugely popular. Hugely popular. One of the last critically acclaimed, hugely popular network uh, hour-long television shows before everything was NCIS and, and CSI. Um, Lost, the, the basic premise is that a plane crashes on an island, a um, bunch of people die, a bunch of people survive, and then this island has some magical properties or, or some um, unique uh, uh, scientific aspects or exists outside of time or something. And then episode by episode, not only do you get the back character the the, uh, the background of the characters but you also get how this island has its own life and you have a, a smoke monster that re re relates and reacts in in complicated ways and you have another group of people who've been inhabiting the island who are very vicious and cruel and then you have scientific experiments then you realize you can go back in time there are all these absolutely like fascinating uh episode by episode mysteries that are created and as a viewer, week by week, year by year, you become obsessed with 
this is extraordinary. How is it all going to come together? Like, how does it make sense that this smoke monster both has an both has an agency in and of itself, and there's this other sort of demon god living on the island? And how does it all come together? And what's going to happen? And the answer is, no one ever thought about that. No one ever figured it out. There was no the the, the showrunners just never thought ahead, and it was like the biggest like fuck you punch to the gut of a, of an audience member or a reader, any of us have ever experienced. And this isn't a me thing. This is just like, if you, if you Google the YouTube thing of like the 50 most unexplained things about (laughs) loss that make you hate it in retrospect, you know, and they're like, each viewer has his own 50. Like it's, there are an infinite (laughs) number of things that just make you crazy to think about. Um, I feel like Ian Reed has some of that here. It's not as awful because as opposed to taking years of people's lives and a million recaps in, you know, New York magazine. Ian it's Reed, like the, the artistic equivalent of a Ponzi scheme where like you, you right, think exactly. it's brilliant until the very last minute. Exactly. And you're like, oh, no one even thought it's not like the, the answer was bad. It's that they were writing all these cool mysteries. And the reason they were able to do this all the whole time is because none of it made sense. Like it's no one bothered. There was this guy in loss and then I'll stop. But over and over again, the thing that made me the, and there are a million things, but my thing is like almost every episode, this obese man who won the lottery comes back to these numbers that were the numbers that won the lottery for him. And they appear in the lottery ticket and they appear in the clouds and they appear on a nuclear submarine that's found on the island. And no one knows why at the end and it's never mentioned and the show just ends. Like there's no, like no one even, no one even says like, hey man, like remember those numbers you're always talking about that seems to be the solution to all the problems? Like what was that about? No one, they just like, they stopped being mentioned in the last six episodes and there's no, so it's not that egregious. But whereas this book is gripping in the same way Lost was gripping, but fails to end in any sensible way, in the same way Lost fails to end, I feel like the, the movie version, uh, rewritten and uh, adapted by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Charlie Kaufman, is all about the ending. I, I feel like the movie is obsessed with its ending, where yes. I, I feel like Charlie Kaufman read this book had a similar reaction to ours or to mine, which is, this is fascinating. This is exciting. This deals with some really complicated issues, but it was a massive failure. So I am going to redirect this and make it all about the end. And I'm going to give you the the watcher of this movie, an end that is satisfying, that is unexpected, that is beautiful in a way that art can be beautiful and that Ian Reid can attempt. So would you like, Matthew, to talk a little bit about the ending of the movie um, as a way to get into the fundamental of what differs the movie from the book? Sure, yeah. And I I do agree that I think he he takes what is totally unresolved and and poorly thought through in the book and he he thinks it through and works it through really beautifully. And he, he adds another, I think, pretty significant element to it. It's not really a new puzzle piece, but it's a new element to the storytelling. And he subtracts all of the elements that make the book a literary thriller. Like, you know, so there are no interstitial um, uh, conversations about a grisly murder. There are little interstitial moments and and shots, but they're not, they're not murder mystery-ish. They're 
mostly of, of, of the old man, like cleaning dishes in a house and sort of doing, doing mundane tasks and then going to work and walking through the high school. Uh, and then he, there is a caller and there's some similar feeling of, of confusion, but it is within the first five to 10 minutes made clear that, that there's something profoundly unreal about what we're watching. So, so there's far less of a sense that there's an actual live threat and more of a, like a, an, a, a mounting, a, an increasingly clear collage of expressionist, you know, storytelling. So I, and, I think, and that, I think yeah. that the fact that it is a Charlie Kaufman movie Right. Um, makes the viewer show up with a different set of expectations than being yes. told that you're reading a literary thriller. I mean, yeah. if whether you've watched Eternal Sunshine or Being John Malkovich or, or sort of these other books that play with the liminality of, of time and, and place and how what is might not be what it appears, I, I think that you know from the beginning that what you're watching is a Charlie Kaufman movie and therefore there's a an irreality to almost all of it in the way that Ian Reed has the benefit of sort of pulling the rug out from under, under you. Uh, Charlie Kaufman doesn't attempt to do that. Charlie Kaufman from the beginning indicates, you know, her name changes in the first 10 minutes from one yeah. name to another. Like he, he's know, able to hear her thoughts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, it's very clear early on that, that this is, uh, and, and those are the two, the, the two of his movies that, that felt close. Well, that those, and then Synecdoche, New York, Synecdoche, New York was closest in being like, it's my, it's my favorite of his movies, but it, it is, it's like the most punishing. <laughs> so I, I'll say there, there's actually one other thing that I think Ian Reed did pretty well or interestingly in the, in the book that, that is, is one of the things that Coffin most picks up on, which is that he, there is a, a um, an awareness and a skepticism throughout the book of the male author slash imaginer's ability to create this mind of this woman. So like down, you know, like including that the caller being a man affecting a woman's voice and there, you know, there's there are these lines like, you know, thought is more, is more authentic than action or than life. And the Jake makes this, this, this uh, claim about, I think a lot of what we learn about others isn't what they tell us. It's what we observe. So it's, you know, it, it, you, you see more clearly who someone is from the outside sometimes than the inside. Do you mind parsing this for me? Because this is what I struggled with most in the book okay. and the movie. A man is imagining slash inventing a woman. That woman is telling her story. And yet the woman who is imaginary doesn't have a good firm sense of what's going on in the invented reality. She doesn't remember her own name at times. She doesn't remember how long she's been with the boyfriend. She doesn't remember whether she's had too much to drink or had nothing to drink at all. She doesn't, this is both in the book and the movie. Yeah. Can you explain to me wh what that means or what's going on? Why does a, an imagined fictional character within a fiction not have a good grasp of her reality or not why is that imaginary person unable to remember things right there's so there, there, are, there are a couple different pieces of writing and, and movie that, that the book reminded me of is, is the, even even apart from the movie itself one was that obscure object of desire do you know the louis buñuel movie i do not 
Okay, so it's it's a it's a really entertaining, weird movie, but it's a, a guy who's falls in love with this woman and she sort of he's he's obsessed with her and he kind of pursues her and she's elusive, but she's very beautiful, and they kind of they they have sex and they but then she also has sex with other people and he's he's kind of forever chasing after her and and they have this kind of violent relationship and he's awful to her, she's awful to him, but he, he can't stop desiring her and she kind of destroys his life but also gives purpose to his life and it would be a an intense psychodrama romance anyway but then Buñuel does this thing where the character who has one name and one part in the movie is is alternately played by two different beautiful women okay so they're just two actresses who without explanation step in and out of the role and the man just treats them as if they're the same. And to That's me, it, it felt it feels like part of what that enacts is the the man's tendency to to see in all women really kind of the same single figure, which is his own his own desire more than anything else. You know, hence the hence the title. And 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 that. So so the other thing that this the other movie the, the other book that this most reminded me of, or didn't sorry didn't remind me of because I think this is a really wonderful novel, but but uh, put me in mind of was the brief history of the dead. By Kevin Brockmeyer. Do you know that one? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, so the the premise of that one, very simply, is that there is a city where, uh, when people die, they go to this city after dying, and then they stay in that city. You you figure out eventually they stay there as long as there is a person on Earth who remembers them, and this is like a, this is another version of the. A, a kind of an enactment of this the the neurological phenomenon that David Eagleman also writes about in his his little weird book of st- stories some whereby like we in our brains build little simulations of the minds of people we know and and so we ha- we are sort of running little simulations of all the people and you know and this is we'd say someone lives on, on in your memory and you know the better you know someone the more accurately you can create you can kind of like simulate what that person might think and so this felt to me like the it had the flickering quality of a of a fantasy or of an imagination or of a dream in which there is a kind of a, a a toggling between different possible versions. I'd say in the movie, it's much clearer that the woman is a composite than it is in the book. Um, in the book, it seems much more like she's she's basically one person with the small exception of there's a moment where, and it's in the movie, it's the only moment where there's anything remotely like sexual tension where the two, the, the uh, Jake and the girlfriend start to make out in the car. And then uh, the creepy old man is watching them. And so to me, that felt clearly like a projection of like sometime the old man had been watching some young couple make out in a car. So that that felt like, you know, there's a little bit of a piecing together of those roles there. In the movie, it's much clearer that there are actually many different imagined and possibly real snips and snatches of women that, that are being pieced together to this one. So to me, it was like taking that uh, clearly like totally male-centric perspective and then telling the story by plugging the pers- the POV into the the constantly shifting role of the woman. I think that that's very well said. I, I think that I have a better sense of it now. Thank you. My only follow-up question is, is that the old man realizing that he has not filled out her character enough? Or is that actually 
us entering into the mind of this fictional character within a fictional character and seeing the desperation or the uncertainty of, of somebody who is stuck as a fictional character in the mind and therefore doesn't have access to her own memories. And you missed another layer, which is, or is that Ian Reed slash Charlie Kaufman preemptively apologizing for being a man making up and telling the story of a woman as if, as if he can imagine what's inside her mind. And I, I mean, I think part of what I actually kind of liked about the book and the movie is that it's, I think it's all three. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then that part, that, that, that's part of what I liked as well. I, I think the, the, the scariest part of, of both the book and the movie is when you are in her mind and she is not in control of her mind. And you don't know whether that's because she is not in control because the person who is imagining her is not in control or if it's the author who's not in control. And I think that that tripartite tension is literally thrilling. A friend's dad, when I was a kid, I remember being in the car with them and and the the friends, they mentioned Garrison Keillor on the radio and the friend said, dad, what's a humorist? And he said, oh, it's, it's like a comedian son, but just not as funny. And to me, like, that's what literary thriller is. Like, it's like a thriller, but so, so that's like think, all the shouts and murmurs stuff. Like I've written oh, God, the yeah. Yorker or the McSweeney, the McSweeney's I've written whatever, a dozen of these things. <laughs> and I'm trying to, I try to explain them to people. And it's like, like, imagine if instead of like a joke that makes you laugh a lot, there's a joke where you go like, Oh, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Like that is what I've accomplished in publishing in the New Yorker and McSweeney's. It's right, like, well, and, oh, and, hmm, how, yeah. how astute. Which is which is which is what literary the literary genre does as well. Yes. It flatters the, the reader. So some, something I think was like was probably just uh, a, inesc- an inescapable difference between the, the book and the movie is that temporal and physical uh, and, and like identity based ambiguities in the book where like the, the 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 character might say something like it seems like Jake can hear my thoughts or like it seems like the dad seems a little older than he was a minute ago, or it seems like I can't remember this, those kinds of things, because it's a book are simply impressions. And they may be like increasingly ominous impressions, but in a movie, they're unmistakable physical differences. And that's why like, I think, and I think in some ways, like maybe though they both, both Ian Reed and Charlie Kaufman leaned into their the the nature of their their medium because Ian Reed played that ambiguity to the hilt and Charlie Kaufman let us know right away that this is a literally unstable story that we're being told. So do you mind talking a little bit about the movie? Because yeah. the movie differs from the book in some fundamental ways. Um, we've alluded to it, but not explicitly gone through it. So do you mind talking about um, both the allusion aspect of the movie where it's full of um, references to other works of art. And then uh, do you mind discussing the ending? By the way, I should say, Jake is played by Jesse Plemons, uh, the girlfriend whose name is sometimes Lucy, sometimes Louisa, Luis, Lucia. uh, She's played by Jesse Buckley. The the dad is played by David Thewlis and the mom is played by Tony Collette. They're all terrific. Um, oh, masterfully, by yeah. the way. Like, and, it, and I think like, like Jesse Buckley is like, the movie couldn't work if she were not. I was going to say, especially Jesse Buckley, yeah. whom I hadn't seen before, who is no, an she's extraordinary actor. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean I, she makes it work in a way that it really could not otherwise. Yeah. So the the movie throughout start, I think, I guess like probably the, the earliest instance is is in that initial car ride 
throughout the movie, there are quotations, lengthy quotations from other texts, from the the musical Oklahoma, from the movie reviews of Pauline Kael, from there's a, there's a, a, you know, very close reenactment of the, the Nobel prize speech from a beautiful mind there, there is early on, there's a, there's an exchange between, since this is a nominally poetry podcast, which by the way, like I'm so bad at controlling what this podcast is about that I'm, I just feel like sort of bleeding listeners and everything. What the fuck is he doing this time? So there is actually a, a decent amount of poetry in the, in the movie. So Early on, he he's able to hear her thoughts. She, her thoughts are all, uh, "When am I going to break up with this guy?" And he he jumps in by saying, uh, by by talking about Wordsworth, uh, and specifically Wordsworth's um, ode, "Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood." The girlfriend responds like most normal people, saying, "Like that's the whole time. That's a title, and like oh, I, I I'm not a metaphorical type gal, and I don't you know she's she it's it's she seems not even to have heard of Wordsworth." Yep. Um, so he he does say like oh don't you even want to hear how it begins just because this is a poetry podcast this is such a double layered Charlie Kaufman uh, reference that I, I have to say that of course the first line of Intimations of Immortality is the child is father of the man of course like throughout the movie we're seeing like young Jake juxtaposed against old Jake and on top of that the child is father of the man and the next two lines are themselves Wordsworth borrowing from an earlier poem. He wrote a shorter poem called My Heart Leaps Leaps Up. And then the next day he started writing Ode and he stole the first three lines. Or so he sort of stole three of the lines and put them at the first line. So it's a it's not only like uh, referring to like the the theme of the movie. It's also repeating the allusive quality of the movie. So then like minutes later he refers to the girlfriend as a poet and she's, she seems suddenly to be a poet and who presumably would at least have heard Wordsworth's name and not say something like, I'm not a metaphorical type gal. And he says, are you working on anything? And she recites from memory a, a pretty polished and like uh, a moving and strange poem about the first line is it's terrible. Coming home is terrible. And Jake is, is extremely moved by this. This is a real poem by I think Hannah Davis called Bone Dog. Yes. Uh, this, along with many, many other references from from throughout the movie, we get there's a there's a a brief moment in the when she gets to the farmhouse, but then she goes up to Jake's childhood bedroom, which there's a very brief shot where you see a bookshelf, and on the bookshelf are like half of the references made in the movie, including like uh, there's a collection of Wordsworth, there's a collection of Pauline Kael essays. There's a uh, book called Introduction to Virology. There's a DVD of Beautiful Mind. There's a poster of Betty Davis. They've referred to this conversation about Betty Davis earlier. And uh, in the book of po- there's a book of poetry that's open to well. the poem Bone Dog. Sorry, what? David Foster Wallace. Oh, David Foster Wallace. Yeah, supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And then I also, you can only see it. I, I only saw it because I happened to pause it here. But did you notice the handmade, hand-labeled DVDs? No, I, I did notice the urn of the dogs. The urn of the dog, yeah. Who we yeah, saw no. just moments earlier. Yeah, what was the? What was the? the so, so he has <laughs> below the the beautiful line. He has like uh, you know those little punch punch uh, machines that make you know label makers. Yeah, sure. So he has he has a bunch of uh, DVDs, and the the spines have these label made label maker uh, labels on them, and their labels are <laughs> abandoned friendships. Lasting memories of sorrow, futile efforts at success, and unforgettable mishaps. What a jackass! <laughs> like that's where I—it's so, it's, it's so ridiculous. But I just—it's just, <laughs> <laughs> just 
it's uh, funny. I mean, th- yeah, there, are, it is. there are funny moments in both the book and the movie. I, I think Charlie Kaufman can be very funny. I wish he yeah. were funnier more in, yeah, yeah, in yeah. this movie. Um, but have you seen The Usual Suspects? I have. So the, for those of you, I'm about to spoil The Usual Suspects. And I, <laughs> I, if you haven't seen The Usual Suspects now, like, I don't know, go fuck yourself. But like, but also, you also like, this is a movie where like, if you, if you spoil it, like, 90% of the joy will be drained from the movie <laughs> that's, that's instantly. Say. So like if you haven't seen The Usual Suspects, like go fuck yourself. But also if you haven't seen The Usual Suspects, really like stop listening to this <laughs> podcast now and go watch The Usual Suspects because it provides one of the, a, a, a unique joy in the history of, of cinema, which I will spoil now, which is that you get to the very end of the, the movie in The Usual Suspects and Kaiser Soze, played by the always lovable Kevin Spacey, has been narrating the movie. And then we pan out and the detective who has been interrogating Kevin Spacey drops his mug dramatically on the ground after Kevin Spacey leaves because it turns out that all the elements of the story Kevin Spacey has been telling exist in various names and forms on a poster on his wall and on the coffee cup and on uh, the sign of the name of whoever made the cabinet, et cetera. So the entire story we just read is all made up. And like, don't think about that too much because like, why would Kevin Spacey just use everything from the officer's office? Like that doesn't really make any sense, but it is a stunning, wonderful moment where everything you've just seen becomes meaningless. Everything we thought was real was actually invented by a character. But, and but, it but, is, but I, unlike, unlike I'm thinking of many things, it's motivated in that like, it's not just that it was all a lie or a dream. The guy telling the story is actually the central villain of the story he's telling. And so he's telling this elaborate story in order to do what he does then moments later, which is walk down the street and get into a car and disappear. Exactly. Whereas this scene this scene, and I'm thinking of ending things, has that um, usual suspects feeling because it is providing all of the raw material that we have been viewing up until this point that we will continue to view. But it is not surprising at all. It It is as though we are handed a manual in the middle of the, the movie saying all these references that you know come from somewhere or uncertain what they're about, let me show you the bedroom that, that contains them all. Um, so as opposed to providing a thrilling reversal, it like very gently and generously provides a key to the map that we've been trying to uh, navigate this whole time. Yeah, right, which I think would be, if, if it were really a mystery up till now, would probably be would have a little bit of that thrill, but would I think actually also be sort of annoying and unsatisfying. Agreed. There is a very, very minor motif in the book that that Charlie Coven picks up on and makes almost the major theme of the movie, which is, uh, and I think in the, that very first page you read, the, the narrator says, is an unspoken idea unoriginal? And then later she makes notes about, she says, I, I don't have it exactly before me, she's like, it's, it's always interesting to meet somebody's parents because it reminds us that, reminds you that we're all composites. And that we're kind of made up of other, and so the the I mean one of the the major themes of the the movie is that rather than being an unappreciated genius, I also thought of do you know Henry Darger, the no. outsider artist? He he was I mean to me it felt like he had to be part of the motivation or the the inspiration because he was a 
a um, old man, janitor, very poor. Oh, really? as, a, as a boy, he went to one of these horrible, like nickel boys type penal institutions yeah. for like young boys who were in trouble. He horribly abused. He, he lived an extremely reclusive life. And then when he died, they found like a 6,000 page illustrated epic novel about the Vivian girls. I remember uh, now. And it yes. is and like, it is actually it is literally beautiful. a masterpiece. Right. right. I mean, it, it, right. it is like genuinely, I mean, a lot is sort of traced and printed and it's, it, it's all these different mixed media, but it is genuinely beautiful and strange. And, and there even like, there's some notes, like there, there's a reference in the, I'm thinking of any things to like the, the Jake making paintings in the, in the basement. And they're sort of like, they're androgynous and like they're, they have, little weird penises and things. So the Vivian girls famously like have little penises. And this, the, right. the suspicion is that Henry Darger had probably never seen a woman naked and, and just sort of assumed that oh, like, crazy. Oh, they're like boys like that, you know? Right. Yeah. So that, 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 that came to mind, but in the movie, unlike in the book, Jake is not a genius. He's not, he didn't like actually go to, you know, grad school for physics. He, we were told he, he at school, he won the, the diligence pen, which he, which is really, Really, it's a funny joke. It's no, it's very funny, and they even have a later moment where, you, if you look, he's I, wearing I, the pin. He's wearing the diligence pin. His mom. Um, yeah. He's yelling, he, "I didn't want the diligence pin!" Right? right. Yeah. He's like, "It's a, it's a also ran." And then his mom later, like more brutally, says, "You know, j- j- trying to praise him, she says he, maybe he wasn't as naturally talented as some of the others, but he worked so hard. You know, and there's to do as well as Jake did with no special talents or abilities. That's more <laughs> impressive. So, I mean, it is funny, but there also is this sense that like he's." He's a little bit of a dilettante who was like just smart enough to sort of know his own limitations and be really frustrated by them. So that there is a, it's a, it's not just that like, cause that, that's the thing in, the, in, in, um, I'm thinking of any things is like in order for this guy to be a totally unappreciated genius, like there does need to be some indication of like, well, where is his actual original thought? And of course the answer to that is this brilliant book that you've been right. reading is his original thought. Whereas in the movie, he has no original thoughts. There's there's even a uh, a line. I mean, it's some, there's basically like a line where the Jesse Buckley girlfriend character says this little this here's the little paragraph that to me was like probably the slightly too explicit like thesis statement of of the movie, which is it's tragic how few people possess their souls before they die. Nothing is more rare in any man, says Emerson, as an act of its own, and it's quite true. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. That's an Oscar Wilde quote. Um, and to me, like th- that's part of what I found so moving about the movie is that it was a, a it was a genuinely like tr- tragic sort of swan song made up of totally unoriginal thoughts. Like it's a swan song for for a not a sad genius artist who died in obscurity, but for somebody who who was whose death is just as sad but who had no genius original thoughts at all. But like everything is sort of a composite of things he's watched or read or heard of. But were you not bothered as I was um, by how sophisticated that composite was? I mean, where you spent a lot of time blaming Ian Reed for mm-hmm. his, you know, self-indulgence and more than self-indulgence, his putting himself up on some sort of literary pedestal um, implicitly. I, I felt that same way towards Charlie Kaufman, where I'm like, I get it, man. Like, you you not only are familiar with the history of cinema, but you're familiar with the history of cinematic criticism. You know, you you you're reading these um, sophisticated poets and sophisticated nonfiction essays. You're you're a master of all of these 
various, you know, cinematic and stage arts, philosophy and painting. And, and like, did it not seem to you as it did to me that like, I know Charlie Kaufman knows all this stuff. Why is he trying to show me how much he knows? Right. So the, the, yeah, I had a couple thoughts about this. So, because you're, you're right, like at a certain point, like if Jake has this not deep knowledge of all these fields, like isn't he then kind right. of unacknowledged? I mean, so, like so, but, but I think, cool. I think and like, like, where's all the lowbrow stuff? So I mean, I get- think, well, all right. So, so I, I think the, the, the part that felt to me least likely for somebody to have a working familiarity with was the part that was um, that is that is that is drawn directly from the book, which is which is the early early on. There's a little exchange in the car about virology and this sort of there's like both the girlfriend and Jake use uh, extremely precise, extremely opaque jargon that seems to be the sort of thing you could only say if you were a vi- virologist. That is from the book, and then he he puts in intro to vi- virology in 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 the stack of books. That to me felt like the the least likely instance. But elsewhere, I thought he actually does a makes a point throughout the movie of saying this is not really deep knowledge. This is this is middlebrow. Like this is he he he's read Pauline Kale reviews. He's okay. he knows about Betty Davis, and then and then there even like there are a couple of moments where. Where the the um they they're in the, there's one moment they keep referring to the girlfriend as having different professions and she kind of go she seems like mildly confused but then immediately goes along with whatever the new suggestion is. There's a mo- moment where they both like supposedly the story is that both she and Jake are physicists and she gives the example of the Curies and the dad who's who's a a boor and a philistine says like oh I, point, everyone right? knows about the Curies I've heard of the right. Curies. And then there's, you know, uh, um, later on in the car, Jake uh, asks about if she's read a supposedly fun thing that'll never do again by David Foster Wallace. And the first thing she says is like, oh, didn't he kill himself? And he says, yeah, well, he killed him. That's the, even people who don't, haven't read a word of his literature know that. Every, everybody knows that. So there is a, a feeling that like, and like the speech is from a beautiful mind. So like, it feels <laughs> yeah, very much you know, like, like a, right. it's, it's, an, it's aspirational. It's the sort of stuff that you reach for and read and want to know and want to demonstrate your knowledge of if you want to be really smart and sophisticated, but it doesn't seem like it's actually that demanding or sophisticated in itself. God, that's giving Charlie Kaufman so much credit. I think you're right. <laughs> I just, I, I wonder whether he was, you think that he was purposefully painting a portrait of a oddball who thinks he's smart and therefore has a superficial knowledge of the type of things that this oddball is interested in. You think Charlie Kaufman distanced himself enough from the film in order to not yes. think that he's choosing the right references, but choosing the references that this guy would have thought of. I, I think I think so. To to give like contrasting examples, he he he. There's a there's extensive quotation from Oklahoma, and there's extensive quotation from A Beautiful Mind. Now, A Beautiful Mind in the A Beautiful Mind scene, where like in the in the Beautiful Mind movie, which of course is also a movie about a guy who who's delusional and sees people who aren't there. You know, yes. um, sees people who aren't there. He's a he's a Nobel. A prize-winning mathematician, and at the end, he he gives this extremely sappy speech about really it's all about love. And in the audience, you see these these characters who've been played by attractive young people throughout the movie, played in like horrible, horrible stagey makeup. That, that I remember watching *A Beautiful Mind* and seeing like his his made up old <laughs> wife and being like, "What is that's not no, like that doesn't look remotely right. like a real person." I, but but isn't but then but, but then, but then in, in in this movie. They're wearing like literal high school stage makeup. Like it's it's deliberate. So to me, like he's quoting that scene with contempt. Whereas the citations from Oklahoma, including like an extensive dream ballet segment to give a nod to Agnes DeMille, 
I think that he's making fun of a beautiful mind as being supposedly smart people fair. And then he is making a point of elevating Oklahoma and saying, aha, this is not just pop culture. I actually think there's something really fine and beautiful to this. And then the, the last, really the last note of the movie is a song sung by a sad Jake-like character from Oklahoma, which is a very hopeful song in which there, of course, which ends, of course, with Jake's uh, death. So the other thing we should say, Jake does not butcher himself in the movie. He die. he sort of passively kills himself by sitting in his car and waiting ambiguously and he sort of loses his mind and he basically just sit, sits in his truck and in the very last shot of the movies you see his truck in the parking lot with the ignition off just covered in a foot of snow right so he, he just freezes to, freezes to death yeah and, and his death pangs are animated for us through what you've alluded to as a rather moving lovely balletic dance routine yeah 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 um and jesse Clemens singing a song from Oklahoma, all grease painted up and terrible makeup in yeah, front of everybody lonely else. Room is what which is, yeah, which is I think, both absurd and moving in yeah. a in, in a very impressive way. But what, what also, you, I'll, I'll say he, but, but just the, the used Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the, the line from um, Eloisa to uh, to Abelard. He was proud enough of pulling yeah. that juicy line from Pope's. Uh, under-celebrated poem that he made it the title of his movie. So I think he's proud when he pulls a deep cut and he pulled so many non-deep cuts in this movie that I think I think that was deliberate. Not that it really matters how deliberate it was, but. That's totally fair. I also think Charlie Kaufman is just likes making fun of contemporary movies. You know, like yes, he, yes, yes, there, yes. There, there's an absurd scene where, which is in many ways the opposite of the movie, I'm thinking of ending things, where a, a man declares his love for a woman and the woman gets fired from her job as a diner. Yeah. And then it's like cheese ball nonsense. And then we, there's a a name where it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, which is like a a weird insult to Robert Zemeckis. Similarly, I mean, also he just makes fun of a beautiful mind and like Russell Crowe and the, the director of a beautiful mind in a way that it's for me was a counterpoint to what you're talking about, where it's not him differentiating between high art and low art it's him making fun of his contemporaries in filmmaking just like he makes fun of i mean in a way like the the robert zemeckis movie is that's more dignified than the the ron howard movie because it's sort of like it it knows what it is and the right there is i actually think he he used so so there is a little weird moment where you see the janitor eating his lunch in the middle of the night while he's watching this movie in the in the cafeteria and it's this this schlocky dumb romantic comedy movie um, and there's a scene where the, the 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 cute boy and the cute girl are working as waiters in a restaurant and the cute boy declares his love for the girl and the girl gets fired, but they sit outside and they're happy and they love each other. In the middle of this very dumb, bad scene, there is a totally forgettable old man who's, who's the, the girl is waiting on. And he does, I think, nicely later reframe his relationship with the girl as being with, with the girlfriend character as being like, Oh, we met in a, in a cafe where she was my waitress. So he, you see him like turn that scene so that the, the sad old forgettable man is, is the secret hero of the, of the, um, of the scene, which I thought like that, that was a nice little microcosm for what Jake does throughout the movie. Yeah. I mean, Charlie Kaufman is a snob and he's definitely incredibly pretentious and he's very happy to, to promote his own erudition, but I think it works pretty well in this movie right no that's that's totally fair and i i give him a i give both the book and the movie a thumbs up do you, <laughs> do you... Though, though the movie is i mean i found it at least like 
I found it easier to watch the second time because the first time it was so, I just found it so excruciating to like know that what you're watching is this weird mess and collage and know that like the, the girl character can't possibly be real despite being the, the central figure. But then having to like slowly work things out, I found it like, I found it less pleasant to watch than any of his other movies, though I still admire it greatly. It is, it has no thrilling as aspects to it. It is a, a two hour and 14 minute exquisite lyric collage. With exquisite performances. Oh, ter- I mean, again, terrific, terrific performances that you could, I mean, the movie really, you couldn't, this is not a movie that is actor proof. I think that's what I got. Do you have any, is there anything that we haven't? Oh yeah. So one, since, since our, the, the, the other podcast we are, we are accidentally starting is the, is he secretly gay podcast? Because I wanted to ask oh, that question about the Jake in the movie, because <laughs> one of the other things that seemed like there are these, there are a few moments where Jake seems like oddly sensitive in a, in a way that felt like, well, where is that coming from? So, so early on the, the, girl quotes the girlfriend quotes uh betty davis saying getting old ain't for sissies talking about the parents now they're suffering as they get older and he says true but you know one might object to her use of the term sissies as a pejorative uh which is like well yeah that's right i mean that is you know i guess i guess that is sort of sort of in an old in an old-fashioned obscure way homophobic and then later on um she in what feels very much like i couldn't find it the source but it feels very much like a like a women's studies paper she's reciting from memory later on in the, in the movie where she says psychiatrist for for a long time because of freud blamed mothers for everything and she rattles off a, a list of pathologies and in that list is homosexuality and jake it objects again to that, like, well, homosexuality isn't a pathology. The dad refers a couple times to, he refers to Billy Crystal as a, I think as a Nancy. And then he, Nancy. and then it's off stage. It's not clear, but it seems like he's, he's referring to Jake as a Nancy. Uh, there again, there's the scene where they make out in the car very delicately. And he almost seems like a child doing it. And that feels like a memory, literally like a memory that the janitor has of watching two kids make out in a car. Other than that, I mean, he he may not ever touch her in the movie. There's no there's no chemistry. There's a sense that like both the mom and the dad feel like because we we realize that the mom and the dad are also his sort of memory slash feelings about the mom and the dad, and they both ha- are like weirdly crude about having sex, both like with themselves and the dad That's referring right. to like the father, the girlfriend. Like, well, we're not saying... old fashioned about you and Jake right. fucking. Are you going to do much fucking in this bed? And it feels like <laughs> right. very coarse in a way that I read as being like. Jake wincing at something his dad said in a way that felt like maybe more than what was intended by his dad. So it felt like there was this very understated theme in the movie of, and he like, there's all this stuff about being, oh, you're into musical theater, really? And we learned like, oh, he's really into musical theater. He knows them all very well. And there's a weird little jingle. He recites the jingle to the, he, uh, Charlie Kaufman, because he can't resist, he creates a whole stand-in for the Dairy Queen they stop in, which is this imaginary place called Tulsi, Tulsi Town. Town. And, he, Tulsi and he, Town. there's like a whole horrible, like nightmarish, like <laughs> sexy a, ice cream queen clown and who's like who's like stomping on villains in the yes and, and commercial like this, we see like for part of the song is like you can eat all keep eating more junk you keep <laughs> getting fatter and uh and um and there's this weird creepy moment where he gives this like really like a kind of unnerving extremely precise falsetto sort of mincing rendition of the clown queen song that, that again, like 
effeminate and right like maybe almost offensive depending right but it it just felt to me like there was a sort of quiet under like theme throughout the movie like maybe this jake was gay and like when he's dreaming about this girlfriend he's never really dreaming about like hooking up with a girl it doesn't seem like it's it's sexual desire it seems like it's a it's a picturesque desire right I, i wonder whether everything you're referring to could be explained by a lack of sexuality or an, an asexuality as mm. much as a, a homosexuality. I mean, it, it seems like, like just the fail, father, failing to fit into like straight roles. Right. And, yeah. I, I mean, and, and he, he is sincerely interested in, in musicals and he, he lists off those names of musicals and it, it's a sort of an unending, he names like 25 musicals that yeah. he's a, he says, I'm not really into musicals. Fan of, right. And then he lists all of them. Right. Because right, he doesn't really show desire for a man at any point. That's the thing yeah. where if, yeah, if you yeah. think about his bedroom, you would, one would expect in the recesses or the, or the hidden recesses of someone's mind or his childhood bedroom right. yeah, yeah. to have a poster either of a man or a, a woman or to well, have... Well, he hidden, has a poster of Betty Davis, which... <laughs> right, which is, right, what are you yeah. going to do with that, right? Yeah. Or you're going to have um, hidden pornography show up either right. in a in a uh, a memory or in, in the bedroom. And if, if you talk about sexuality, it's not redirected towards men it's uh aborted at at all moments where it seems like when they're about to become sexual he 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 snaps out of it he he doesn't he's made uncomfortable by it in the same way that there are a series of of pretty girls who show up who are intimidators in in the you know high school kids and but it's not as though there's a they're not objects of lust or anything right nor are the boys Right. So it feels more like a high school kid who's never matured beyond being the high school kid whom everybody mocked, who didn't have any coolness or sexuality or, or masculinity to him. So you, you see that, that lack of masculinity in disappointment from the father, in demeaning looks from the cool girls at, at the high school, and in his probably being called, you know, gay epithets his entire yeah, yeah, life yeah. and and fearing that. But 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 that lack of heterosexuality is is clearly a driving factor in in the book less than in the movie. The, the, I think there's one moment in the movie where she says like the the sex has been pretty good, one would assume or something right. like that. Like this is like do you we I don't think we mentioned the cartoon pig. What did you, it was a brief moment, what did you, th- I, I don't know what I think of that. What, Oliver Platt is so winning in the voiceover to that, but like, what did you think of the fucking Oliver cartoon Platt pig at the is, end? is the best person. I mean, the fact that Oliver Platt, like a spectacular, <laughs> obese, old, older <laughs> actor, is uh, willing to voice a pig, a cartoon pig, leading the main characters to his death while the cartoon pig is being eaten away by maggots to its death and you see the maggots drop off the cartoon pig in a slightly humorous but just absolutely grotesque way um oliver platt's a national treasure and that that pig is as well i mean i i think that it is a return to childhood you know in in its cartoon silliness as it is a return towards the like actual product of death as a retelling of a story that Jake tells earlier, which is like 
hey, we used to have these pigs, but guess what happened? We were feeding them for a few days and like they weren't moving. So we tried to like push the pig around and it's hard to push a pig around because like it's a pig, you know, and like it weighs a lot of pounds. We finally pushed the pig upside down. It had been eaten to death by maggots who were still feasting on its rotten corpse. Yeah, I, I think uh, my my hope, if not uh, the, the, the actual reality is that, is that this has been a spoiler for the book and an unspoiler for the movie. Because I think like- I think that's fair. If you watch the movie- wanting to discover a mystery it'll drive you crazy but i think if like it's like russia like if you if you if you went into russian arc waiting to like learn the mystery <laughs> of the russian arc like you do want to kill yourself at the end but if you yeah. walk in knowing that it's like a weird rambling beautiful piece of uh you know lyrical art then you, you say all right i'll i'll accept it Right. It's, it's sort of generous what we've done. So through the reading and spoiling of the book and through the watching and discussing of the movie, we have now created the perfect runway for your listeners to go watch and enjoy I'm Thinking of Ending Things, a movie by Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. yeah. Good work. Go team. That was my conversation with Brian Platzer. You can find him on Twitter at B Platzer. And I'm hoping to maybe to get him back on here semi-regularly, unless all of you completely hate him, in which case let me know and he will be banned forever. Thank you so much for listening. I There's a little bit of extra tape with Brian. This, we actually had a pretty good conversation about reading. Real short thing. I, I may uh, put that out as a, as a tiny bonus in the next day or so. But for now, thank you so much. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.